traditional Easter passage. In fact, we may be the only church on the planet today that is in 1 John chapter 5. Uh, and the reason for this is a few months ago we started a study through this book of the Bible and I laid it out so that we would land on this specific passage on this specific Sunday. Uh, because although it's not a traditional Easter passage, it is still about Easter. Now it's not about Easter in the way you might expect on a Sunday like this. It's not telling the story or we're not, we're not going through the narrative again. Rather, this passage asks you to make a decision about the truthfulness of Easter. You see, I'm afraid you've been duped today. You thought you were coming to church, but you're not at church. You're actually in a courtroom. I know it looks like church with all the flowers, but that was all part of the ruse. You see, you're in a courtroom. At least that's where John takes us this morning here in chapter 5. He takes us to a courtroom, and all of us have a part to play in this courtroom today. All of you are jurors, and you're going to hear testimony from witnesses, and you have to render a verdict as to whether that testimony is true or not. Every good court case has a defendant. In this case, the defendant is Jesus himself. And there is a prosecution that has serious charges against Jesus. The prosecution says Jesus is not who John and the other apostles say he is. The prosecution agrees, yeah, Jesus is a messenger from God, uh, but they reject the notion that salvation runs exclusively through faith in Jesus Christ. The prosecution formerly belonged to the church that John pastored, this church that he's written to here. But they believe so strongly that Jesus is not a part of God's salvation plan that they left that church altogether. And it was a really hurtful break whenever they left. There were relationships, names are known, they had shared stories and experiences together. But this group, who could rightly be called anti-Jesus, who opposed Jesus, have left and they have brought these charges now against him. So they'll agree that there is a God. They'll agree that there was a Jesus. They'll even agree that he died on a cross. But the notion that his death has any impact on your salvation, they find utterly ridiculous. They would call it narrow-minded nonsense. It's impressive whenever we hear about accusations like this, we don't have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to bring that into our modern world. Those accusations have been present in every generation of mankind. Jesus has never been without criticism. And so today, there's still a prosecution that brings charges against Jesus. And they're largely the same, although some of the language may be a bit different. The pro modern prosecution might say something like, well, your belief in Jesus as the only way to God is actually cruel. You're clearly on the wrong side of history with the technological advances that we have now. How can you hold to such antiquated ideas? Truth comes in many forms and you have no right to dismiss the truth claims of others. And so what are you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, what are you to do with these accusations against Jesus? They can create doubt and fear they can harm our faith in him, and we have to face them in order to have a well-reasoned faith and a true faith in Jesus Christ. So what are you going to do? 
Why should you as a Christian have confidence that Jesus Christ truly saves those who believe in him? Why should you believe the message of Easter, that he died and rose again, and by faith in Jesus, salvation comes to you? Well, that's what this court is going to decide today. So my goal is to give confidence to those of you who follow Jesus that your faith in Jesus is not foolish, but proper. And along those same lines, to those of you who are not followers of Jesus, I'm going to invite you today to trust in him, the one who has life for all who believe in him. Now, we're well aware of the prosecution's claims that belief in Jesus is nonsense. We're going to spend our time looking at John's defense of Jesus. And it's in 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 6. And I want you to follow along with me as I read. Here's what John says. Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So let's begin by meeting the witnesses who are going to testify in our case today. John calls three witnesses to the stand, the water, the blood, the spirit, and then there's going to be a sneaky fourth witness as well, and that is God the Father himself. And it's kind of weird on Easter Sunday to step into church and hear talk about water and blood. That's a weird figure of speech. And let me tell you, it has been weird for as long as people have been trying to make sense of the book of 1 John. And so we need to do a little bit of work this morning to make sure we understand what John means by this phrase, the water and the blood. He gives it to us in verse 6. He says, Jesus is the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and by blood. What's he talking about here? In my study for this passage, I found no fewer than seven different answers for what this could mean. I I mean, all of Christendom is kind of up in the air when it comes to making sense of of this line. Uh, And so there's a lot of different options. Uh, Some of them are better supported than others, but you're welcome to choose whatever you want. Uh, Some throughout history have said, well, water and blood, that's a reference to his birth and his death. Uh, Some have said, well, water and blood, uh, that's a reference to his death on the cross. You remember where the soldier stabbed Jesus with a spear and water and blood came out. So they would take the phrase as a singular unit referring to his crucifixion. Others in church history have said, this is a reference to the sacraments, to the ordinances of the church. Water means our baptism and blood means our participation in the Lord's Supper. But let me give you what a majority of Christian writers, thinkers, scholars conclude on this figure of speech. And this is where I land as well. 
Uh, whenever John mentions the water and the blood, what he's doing is he is speaking to these two pivotal moments in the life of Jesus. And water is a reference to the baptism of Jesus, and blood is a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. Why would water, that's the one that's really tricky to make sense of, but why would that be a reference to Jesus' baptism? Well, Jesus' baptism is the beginning of his earthly ministry. And this was a huge moment in the life of Jesus. It's so big that the story is retold in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all make space for the baptism of Jesus. And they all tell the same unified story that at Jesus' baptism, the triune God makes an appearance. Let me show you how Matthew records it in his gospel. In Matthew chapter 3, he writes, When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you see the Trinity at Jesus' baptism? God the Son is baptized, God the Spirit descends, God the Father speaks, and this initiates the beginning of his earthly ministry. So the water I take as a reference to his baptism, the beginning of his ministry with the anointing of the full Godhead, and then the blood I take as a reference to the death of Jesus on the cross. But, but not just his death, the blood is not just Good Friday language. Rather, it's shorthand for all that his death and resurrection accomplished for our salvation. Even with my explanation, the imagery is still a bit fuzzy and unclear. If you were to come up to me after church today and say, I think the water means this, it's all good. That's not the point. The point here is that there is, in this description of water and blood, there is a place of agreement between John and the prosecution, and there is a point of disagreement between them. You see, they seem to agree on the water part of that image, whatever that represents, but they disagree on the blood part. That's why John said in verse 6, Jesus is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only. Like, we've got that, but he came by water and by blood. So that's the point of disagreement, the blood of Jesus, his crucifixion. In other words, it's safe to say that the prosecution is rejecting the power of Jesus' death on the cross to save those who believe in him. And the whole message of Christianity hinges on this very point. If the prosecution is correct and Jesus was just a mere mortal who got crossways with local authorities and then was killed, we are wasting our time and our resources here today. If he's just another man who died another death, then what's the point of all of this? The story of the Bible is false. Uh, I need to find a different work. You need to do something different on Easter Sunday in the future. That's how serious this charge is. They are lessening the person of Jesus to something much smaller and much different than what the Bible gives us over and over again. The key message of the Bible is that God really was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And it's God himself who bears our sins on the cross. But if Jesus is not the son of God, then his death no longer has any significance. So the water testifies at Jesus' baptism. This is the beginning of his ministry. He is sent by God set in place for all eternity for the work he's going to do for our salvation. The cross testifies 
That his death and resurrection are the means by which we are made right with God. But John has a third witness to testify, and that third witness is the Spirit. And who is the Spirit? Well, this is God the Holy Spirit who dwells in believers from the moment they trust in Jesus for their salvation. And John tells us at the end of verse 6 that this Spirit is the truth. And that means that what the Spirit says can be trusted because he speaks the Father's truth. And Jesus said the same thing about the Holy Spirit on the night before he was crucified. Jesus told his disciples this. It's in John 15, 26. He said, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So the witness of the Holy Spirit is God's witness to us, just as the arrow of a compass always points north, so the Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus. And in verse 8, John pulls all these three witnesses together, water, blood, spirit, baptism, cross, Holy Spirit. He pulls them together and he says, look, all of these are in agreement. And it's vitally important for the believability and for the credibility of John's defense of Jesus that his witnesses all agree. Their testimonies rise or fall together. We cannot say, I'll accept the testimony of the Spirit, but I'll reject the testimony of his baptism. Or I'll reject the testimony of the cross, but I'll take the baptism as well. They all three go together. Either they are all true together or they are not, but John says their testimony is in agreement. That means their testimony is solid. At this point, John can sense a little bit of uneasiness among the jurors. He's so good at reading people and knowing the room. And here's what he senses in us as he goes through his defense of Jesus. He senses, okay, yeah, we, we, we can agree with the baptism. We can agree on the crucifixion. We can agree with the spirit. But still, there's something about the prosecution's accusations that are convincing. I still struggle to know if this is really true. How do I know if this is really true, what all of these witnesses are saying together about Jesus? And John answers your hesitation in verse 9. Look at it with me. He says, if we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. So John gives us this argument from lesser to greater. If you believe human testimony, and we do all the time. We take the advice of friends, and, and all, all humans are biased and flawed and opinionated, and, and sometimes we're wrong, a lot of times we're wrong. If we'll believe each other's testimonies about any given thing, shouldn't we then believe the testimony of God himself about Jesus Christ, who is his son? You accept human testimony all the time. I did so just this week. Um, on Friday, my wife and I went to Plymouth, and we ate at a place called Angelo's Famous Roast Beef. And the reason we went there is because my friend Matt said, you got to eat at Angelo's Famous Roast Beef. It is the best. And if Matt knows anything, he knows his roast beef. And so, on his testimony, we made the drive, and I ate a mighty fine roast beef sandwich. It made me very happy. And Matt's testimony was true. And if I can believe my friend's testimony about a roast beef sandwich, can I also believe God's own testimony about his own son? 
It's going to be a testimony that's true and trustworthy, a testimony that doesn't deceive, a testimony that points us towards life. In other words, God gets to speak for himself on this deal. So many times when it comes to deciding this case, we're going to look to all these other speakers, other voices, other testimonies. But what has God himself said on this matter? And God has said, Jesus is God the Son, and in him is life. Here's something the jurors also may not be aware of. You're hearing testimony today on these things, but you're a biased jury. You've had this testimony in you the whole time. As a follower of Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit in you has been testifying to this truth ever since your conversion. That's what John says in verse 10. Look at it. He says, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself or herself. So the entire time you've been a child of God, the Holy Spirit's been testifying that you truly belong to him. The Apostle Paul said the exact same thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. He said, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. So the Holy Spirit is a continual comfort. Repeating this testimony in us, reminding us in every sin and every sorrow, you are a child of God. The story of Easter is utterly true and completely believable and worthy of your life. Regardless of every challenge that comes your way, you're a child of God because your faith is in Jesus Christ. This is the point where the prosecution yells, Objection! The statement that salvation goes through Jesus is completely unbelievable. John counters the objection in verse 10. In the middle of verse 10, he says, The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. At this point, you begin to recognize a difference between the prosecution's argument and John's defense. You see, the prosecution is saying, we have discovered truth. And John is saying, God has revealed truth. And that truth revealed from God who speaks for himself. He's not silent. He's not distant. That testimony from God is that Jesus Christ is his son and salvation is found in him. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, verse 37, The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. And so you should believe these witnesses. The witness of his baptism, the witness of his crucifixion and resurrection, the witness of God the Holy Spirit, and the witness of God the Father himself. So far, John has established the credibility and the reliability of his witnesses. But now he pivots and he turns to the content of their testimony. What is it that they are exactly saying? We have credible, four credible witnesses, but what's the content of their testimony? And so John turns to the court reporter and he asks for the testimony of the witnesses to be read for everyone. The court reporter flips through 66 books worth of testimony and then reads these lines from verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony. 
God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. God has given us eternal life. If I were to ask you, what is eternal life, how would you answer? Well, you might say, well, it's eternal. That means forever. And it's life. It's not death. So we're going to live forever. And, and that's true. That's, that's not false in any measure. Uh, but it's not the full answer. Oftentimes we think of eternal life as merely infinite birthdays in some distant future from this day. But God's testimony to us this morning is that the one who has the Son has life. It doesn't say the one who has the Son has the promise of life or one day might find life or somewhere in the future life is going to find them. He speaks present tense. The one who has the Son has life. That eternal life is a here and now reality for those who trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Eternal life starts the moment you say yes to Jesus Christ. And that eternal life is more than just a lot of years to live. That eternal life involves being reconciled to God in our relationship with him. It includes the forgiveness of our sins and an inside-out transformation over the duration of our life on this planet. It also includes the ability to love others self-sacrificially. Christ died for us, and we're going to lay down our lives for others as his followers. It also includes the God-given task to make Jesus known in every nation on earth. And it includes hope that we cling to in every trial, every hardship, every sorrow. And that eternal life holds us forever as God's children. And with it comes more blessings and more joy and glory and happiness than one Easter sermon can contain. The one who has the Son has life. Is that true? God says, yes, it's true. So John is called as witnesses. And he's given us their testimony. And now it's time for his closing statement. And his closing statement is short and profound. Verse 13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Who's his audience? Who's he been making the case for this morning? He says in verse 13, I've written to those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's speaking to Christians, those who are already followers of Jesus Christ first and foremost. And he's trying to reassure you that no matter the doubt, no matter the trials or the struggles, that your faith in Jesus Christ is not foolish. You have not made a mistake. Nor is it weak. He holds you and he loves you. And he really is your Savior forever and ever. In John's defense of Jesus, he's combating two distinct voices. We've seen it throughout our study of 1 John. The first voice is this. It's the inner accusing voice that so many of us live with. And that voice comes from our accuser. That voice comes from the evil one himself. And it may be disguised as just our own self-doubt or our own struggles. But he is sly. And that voice sounds something like this. He might say, who are you to say you're a child of God? Aren't you aware of all the mistakes you've made, all you've done wrong? 
Yeah, sure, you go to church and you play the part, but, but we know the truth. We know what other people don't know and can't see. And what we know, there's no way God could love someone like you. Or he might use your sorrows, your trials as a, as a pressure point. Look at, look at what you're going through. It's clear. If God loved you, he wouldn't let this happen. If God loved you, if he was really there, he would take you out of this. That inner accusing voice is really powerful. There's a second voice that John is fighting against. That's the outer voice of the world that rejects Jesus outright. And that voice sounds something like this. It might say, who are you to say that you have truth? The only reason you're a Christian is because you were born in a Christian culture. If you were born in India, you would have been a Hindu. And so how convenient that you're born here in a Christian place or to a Christian family somewhere in the world, and it just so happens that your faith is the correct faith for all mankind. How convenient. You claim to be a person of love, but in reality, your message is so much hate because you're telling people that unless they believe as you believe, they won't be right with God. Who are you to call yourself a child of God? So over and above the accusing voice inside, over and above the condemning voice outside, booms the eternal voice of God who says the one who has the son has life God has spoken on this and he has spoken for our good he's spoken because he's a God of love and mercy for sinners of the worst kind all of us in this room and so John closes his books and he hands the case over to you and you have a verdict to render today is the testimony of God's word true Christian, can you rely on what this word says, that Jesus is the Son of God, anointed by God in his earthly ministry to go to the cross and die in your place for your sin, and that by faith in Christ risen from the dead, you truly have eternal life in Jesus Christ. You have to decide, Christian, is this a true message? And there's any number of reasons you might do some mental gymnastics and say, I, I don't know, I'm not sure, I struggle, it sounds nice, but you don't know what I'm going through. But you have to believe the Word of God over every other voice that pushes back against it. And the outcome of this is more than just simple agreement or disagreement. We're not just trying to clarify a doctrinal point here today. This has implications on your everyday life. Because when you render this verdict and you say, I believe what God has said. And I believe what Christ has done. And I'm going to hold fast to him. When you believe that message, it produces three results in your life. First of all, you find comfort for your embattled heart. As God silences the accuser once and for all. We read in 1 John a few weeks ago that God is greater than that voice inside of us. A second benefit to you is you will stand unashamed of Jesus in the arena of the world. Not in arrogance. Not in battle. But in the confidence of the eternal God who made all things and holds salvation for those who believe, you will stand unashamed of Jesus. No matter how much the ragers rage, you will be unashamed of Jesus Christ. Third benefit to you is your life will be consumed with loving others the way Jesus has loved you. It's impossible to know Jesus and to live any other way 
but to lay your life down for the sake of others. You will have no fear of God. You will possess no fear of the world. And you will live your life to love people sacrificially through gospel words and gospel acts. When you believe, the one who has the Son has life. Now, what if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ? You might say, Cody, you just said, verse 13, John just wrote to believers, so what's that do for me? He's writing for your benefit as well that you would see this case and that you too would render a verdict. But it's got a different twist to it for you, doesn't it? For the believer, they're having to decide, is, is this true and worth holding on to? What you're deciding is, is this true and I'm, am, am I going to trust in it? And your whole life has come to this point. And whether you realized it or not, God has ordered every step and brought you to this place on this day to hear this message from him so that you would say yes to Jesus Christ. You've heard me describe him this morning as the one and only unique son of God. To die on the cross, to really die, he has to be fully man. For his death to be effective, he has to be fully God. Both of those non-negotiables when it comes to the message of the Bible. And he is the God who created all things, you included. He's the God that we've sinned against. And at the cross, Jesus died in your place for your sin. That's what makes Good Friday just so unbelievable. He died in your place. He takes all of your sin. This great exchange happens. He's held accountable for all that you've ever done wrong or should have done right. And then, in exchange, when you trust in him, he gives you all of his righteousness, all of his purity. He doesn't give you a clean slate. Salvation is not a clean slate. You know what I do with a clean slate? Five seconds later, boom, dirty again. You do the same thing. He doesn't give you a clean slate. He gives you his righteousness and his holiness and his purity and his life. So when you stand before God, you don't defend yourself based on your life, but based on the life of Jesus Christ who died in your place for your sin. He does all of this for you because he loves you. And so he invites you today to turn from your sin, to turn from all that was not Jesus, and to trust in him exclusively for your salvation. That you would turn to him and trust in him, believe that his death and resurrection really is the work that's necessary and sufficient. And when you say yes to Jesus Christ, you'll find that he's already said yes to you. You don't have to beg him to do what he came to do. He extends the invitation to you today. And invite you to come to him. And when you find him today, you will find life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your testimony to us today. I know for my brothers and sisters in the faith, we often struggle with doubt and fear. We're influenced by so many different voices that speak contrary to your word. And so thank you for your word that holds us secure today and gives us new strength. Lord, I pray that in our confidence in Christ that we would be people who are comforted and that we would be people who are unashamed of the gospel and we would be people who love the way we've been loved through great sacrifice. And Lord, through that, bring glory to yourself 
as we fill this world with more and more people who are your children. And I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. Thank you so much, dear God, for bringing them here today. They are precious to you, made in your image, never been a stranger to you. You've never been far from them. And Lord, let this be the day that their eyes are opened and that their faith is put in Jesus Christ and they find new life in him. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for a Savior like this who laid down his life and rose again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Eternal life, ours in Christ Jesus. Let's stand and sing and celebrate that message as we prepare to go out this morning.